This message was presented at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Well, good morning again. And we are going to start our second presentation of this series. So I invite you to bow your heads with me for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for being with us during our first presentation. I pray that you will guide us as we go through our second presentation on this very important topic of the third person of the Godhead. I pray that the presentation will be clear and that we will have a clear understanding of who the Holy Spirit is. So we thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is the second part of the series, and the, the first two really kind of go together, and then we're going to shift us into some different areas starting tomorrow. So we dealt with the everlasting Son in our first presentation. We showed that He is God, that when Jesus comes back, we're going to say, this is our God, we have waited for Him, he, he will save us. We see that He has existed through all eternity the statement was clear that God always has been. That's connected to Hebrews thirteen eight. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. We saw from Desire of Ages that in Christ is life, original, unborrowed, underived. And we saw several statements that he is the pre-existent, self-existent Son of God. He does not require the existence of the Father to exist himself. And so because of that, he is God in the fullest sense, and he is the God who came to save us. And we can place our full and complete trust in him. So what about the third person of the Godhead? This is what we're going to look at. Now this is the Holy Spirit. Now again, I want to point out this book, The Trinity, What Has God Revealed? I have some coupons that at the end, if you're interested, and you can come up and get these from me. They'll be at the Audioverse booth. But if you want to do some further study on this topic, that's an excellent resource. Now, I'm going to go through in this next slide the current fundamental belief of the Seventh-day Adventist Church on the Holy Spirit. And this is what the this belief says. God, the eternal Spirit, was active with the Father and the Son in creation, incarnation, and redemption. He is as much a person as are the Father and the Son. He inspired the writers of Scripture. He filled Christ's life with power. He draws and convicts human beings. In those who respond, he renews and transforms into the image of God. Sent by the Father and the Son to be always with his children, he extends spiritual gifts to the church, empowers it to bear witness to Christ, and in harmony with the scriptures, leads it into all truth. And then you can see a variety of Bible verses that are used, and you can find this in the Fundamental Beliefs book, but these are some of the Bible verses that are used to support the statement that is on the screen. Now, I'm going to share with you, just in a bit of a summary, some of the views out there on the Holy Spirit from anti-Trinitarians. And there is, a, again, a bit of variation among um, anti-Trinitarians, so they're not a homogenous group of beliefs, but there's some similarities. And so at least some of within these groups will believe the things that I'm mentioning here. So they believe that the Father and the Son are distinct beings, while the Holy Spirit is not a being. They believe that the Holy Spirit is a force or a power or an influence, but not a being itself, that it's the Spirit of God coming from um, either God, the Father, or the Son. Um, so, and this is where things get a little bit confusing because of Ellen White's statements about three living persons of the heavenly trio, which we're going to look at later. So what they say is that there's three persons or personalities, but only two beings. Now, that's a little bit hard to wrap your mind around, but um, that's um, what the way they try to explain that statement. So now some of them believe that the Holy Spirit is the spirit that exists between the Father and the Son. They call it their Holy Spirit. Others believe that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of Jesus Christ who is limited in bodily form. Now they have a, a statement that we're going to look at. 
to support that viewpoint. So again, some think that the Spirit of God is the is their Holy Spirit that exists between the Father and the Son. Others believe that the Holy Spirit is just the spirit form of Jesus Christ who is limited in body, bodily form. Um, they also believe that the current view in the Seventh-day Adventist Church on the Holy Spirit and the Trinity is Roman Catholic and unbiblical. They point out that Ellen White warned that Dr. John Harvey Kellogg's teachings in the book Living Temple contain the Alpha of Heresies, and that's very true. She does say that, and we definitely as a church believe that Dr. Kellogg's teachings in that book did contain the Alpha of Heresies. Um, they believe that the current view in the SDA Church on the Holy Spirit is the Omega of apostasy, and they urge a return to the pioneer view of the Godhead. So, and again, many of the pioneers um, believed in this viewpoint that they are promoting now. Now, some of what I'm going to share next comes from this article on Advindicate.com written by an individual named Lemuel Sapien, written July 30, 2017. So um, I'm summarizing some of his ideas from this article that was written. It was very helpful. So just a bit of history on the Trinity and the Seventh-day Adventist movement. Now, William Miller was a Baptist and he was the lead preacher in the Second Advent Movement leading up until 1844. And William Miller was very clearly a Trinitarian, as the Baptist Church is. But the, the, the preaching of the soon return of Jesus and of the Second Advent of Christ attracted not just Baptists, but Christians of many different denominations. And one of the de- denominations that was very much interested in the preaching of the second advent was the Christian connection. This formed a very prominent part of the Millerite movement, and one of the key theological teachings in the Christian connection was an anti-Trinitarian understanding where they had this semi-Arian view of Christ and this view that the Holy Spirit is an influence or um, a power, but not a person. And you had 100 Christian connection churches that joined the Millerite movement. So this anti-Trinitarian philosophy became a significant part of uh, the Millerite movement. However, the lead preacher himself, William Miller, was Trinitarian. But because they were preaching the soon coming of Jesus, they weren't a bunch of anti-Trinitarians saying, in order to be ready for the coming of Jesus, you need to be anti-Trinitarians. You get the point? The, the Christian connection joined the movement not because they supported anti-Trinitarianism, but because they supported the teaching of the soon coming of Jesus. And so anti-Trinitarianism wasn't at the forefront um, or prominent in what they were teaching. Now, if you ask them what they thought about that teaching, they would share that with you. But their present truth was not anti-Trinitarianism. Their present truth was the second coming of Jesus. And so... They had that belief, but that wasn't their present truth. Their present truth was the coming of Jesus. Now, some of the key figures of the Christian connection that joined the Advent movement were Joshua Himes, James White, and Joseph Bates. Joshua Himes never became a Seventh-day Adventist. He did seem to um, show some acceptance for it towards the very end of his life as he came to the Battle Creek Sanitarium. But he viewed the Seventh-day Adventist Church as one of the splinter factions off of the Millerite movement and never joined it. But he was basically the general manager of the Millerite movement for William Miller. He helped to organize William Miller so that he could be a more effective preacher in New England because William Miller was just accepting preaching invitations to every small little church that asked him to come. And William Miller said, no, it's time to go to the big cities and let's get you into the big churches. And so Joshua Himes really was an effective agent for William Miller during that time, and Joshua Himes was anti-Trinitarian, and William Miller was Trinitarian. Um, but again, that wasn't a prominent part of their preaching during those years. James White was also anti-Trinitarian, along with Joseph Bates, and then I don't have all the other names up here, but J.N. Loughborough was also, Uriah Smith was as well, as far as being anti-Trinitarian. So, you know, that's where some of this um, origin of anti-Trinitarianism comes from. It wasn't something that was discovered de novo, the way the Adonis 
put together the Sabbath and the sanctuary and the state of the dead and the spirit of prophecy and the key S doctrines, this was something that came in from the Christian connection. So um, this was not a core foundational pillar of the faith. It just happened to be something that some of the pioneers believed during the early um, part of the the Seventh-day Adventist movement. And um, I'm willing to stand to be corrected on this, but if I understand correctly, I think James White probably died an anti-Trinitarian in 1881, and Ellen White didn't start making clear statements on some of these ideas until the 1890s and early 1900s, because that wasn't really their present truth. Their present truth was the Sabbath and the sanctuary and the second coming. They weren't making anti-Trinitarianism a prominent testing truth. Um, So now we're going to look at this idea that John Harvey Kellogg paved the way for panentheism and then the omega of apostasy. Now, this is quoting from a letter that A.G. Daniels wrote to Willie White on October 29, 1903. And this is A.G. Daniels describing the view of Dr. John Harvey Kellogg. And this is a statement that many many anti-Trinitarians use to prove that what Kellogg taught was Trinitarianism ultimately, and then it led to the Alpha of apostasy, which leads to the Omega of apostasy. So this is this statement by Dr. Kellogg. He then stated that his former views regarding the Trinity, that the Trinity is a false doctrine, had stood in the way of making a clear and absolutely correct statement. So in other words, now that I'm Trinitarian, I can understand things more clearly. This is what he's saying but that within a short time he had come to believe in the Trinity and could now see pretty clearly where all the difficulty was and believe that he could clear the matter up satisfactorily. He told me that he now believed in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, and his view was that it was God the Holy Ghost and not God the Father that filled all space and every living thing. He said that if he had believed this before writing the book, he could have expressed his views without giving the the wrong impression the book now gives. Now that's um, A.G. Daniels quoting Dr. Kellogg. Now, here's the interesting thing to consider. He's saying that the Holy Ghost fills all space and every living thing. And I'm going to have an, a direct statement from Dr. Kellogg where he clarifies this even further. But the idea of panentheism is that God is in everything. He's in you And he's also in the trees and he's in the grass. He's in everything that has life. And Ellen White says this is the alpha of heresy that will be followed by the omega. So the anti-Trinitarians see this and they say, see, he believes in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. So therefore, the book Living Temple with its alpha of heresies has Trinitarianism behind it that will lead to the omega of apostasy. That's basically how they they get there. But now notice this next statement, which ironically was written by Dr. Kellogg himself four days earlier in a letter, October 25, 1903, um, compared to the letter that A.G. Daniels sent to Willie White. This is a letter by Dr. Kellogg to W.W. Prescott, another um, early Adventist pioneer, maybe a second-generation pioneer. So notice what Dr. Kellogg says. The difference is this. When we say God is in the tree, the word God is understood in that the Godhead is in the tree. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Whereas the proper understanding, in order that wholesome conceptions should be preserved in our minds, is that, now notice what he says, God the Father sits upon his throne in heaven, where God the Son is also. Now look at this. While God's life or spirit or presence is the all-pervading power, which is carrying out the will of God in all the universe. So in reality, what Dr. Kellogg is saying about the Holy Spirit is very similar to how anti-Trinitarians describe the power of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to now quote um, a former anti-Trinitarian. His name is Joel Ridgway, who used to be anti-Trinitarian, and now he believes in the biblical position that Seventh-day Adventists believe. And notice what he says about what Kellogg said there. He says, what Kellogg really did was just take what many of the pioneers believed to its logical conclusion. 
If the Holy Spirit is the power of God, and that power is in us and in creation, then we have God in us, and the trees have God in them. The pioneers really had no ammunition against his teachings, and many of them accepted it at first. But Ellen White came up with the right ammunition. She said that the Holy Spirit is a distinct person, not a power or influence. It's interesting, when you look at the dates of Ellen White's statements referring to the Holy Spirit as a person, they appear at the same time that Kellogg started preaching his false theories. You think that's a coincidence? So here's the thing. Panentheism that Dr. Kellogg was teaching, that God is a spirit where, yes, he is a spirit, where he's in us, that's true. But what's, and Ellen White says that the difference between truth and error lies so closely together, the only way you can separate it is through the Bible. Well, but then Kellogg takes it one step further where, yes, God is a spirit, and yes, he can dwell in us when we accept him by faith. But then he says, no, God is in the trees. God is in the grass. And the, the sentiments that were expressed in that book, Ellen White says, are the alpha of heresies and the omega will follow. So interestingly, if you think about it in that way, if you deny the personhood of the Holy Spirit and just say that the Holy Spirit is an all-pervading power but not a person, my belief is, is that that viewpoint is closer to the alpha of, of heresies as seen in Dr. Kellogg book, then, um, and I certainly don't believe that the way Seventh-day Adventists des- describe the Holy Spirit as the third person has anything to do with the omega of apostasy. So they believe that Dr. Kellogg's conversion to Trinitarianism is clear evidence that a belief in the Trinity as defined by Seventh-day Adventists is the omega of apostasy. In reality, their view of the Holy Spirit as a presence fits right in with the omega of apostasy, and Dr. Kellogg taught these things in the Alpha. So I want to go now to show that not all the pioneers believed in anti-Trinitarianism, especially once Ellen White started making statements. Um, so we're going to get to what the Bible says and what the um, Spirit of Prophecy says, but I'm just showing you that when people say, well, I believe in the pioneer view on the Godhead, just realize that not all of the pioneers believe that, but we're going to get to the sources of inspiration. Again, the only source of inspiration among the pioneers is Ellen White, but I'm just showing you that there was not a harmonious, homogenous view on the Trinity um, by all pioneers. This is G.B. Starr, written in Union Conference Record, December 31, 1906. It says, we fear that many have tried to receive the Holy Spirit as an emotion or an influence when according to his name and position given him by Jesus in introducing him to the disciples, he should be received as a person. So here you see a pioneer in, in 1906. This is while Ellen White is still alive, saying that, Um, The Holy Spirit should be received as a person. Now, here's another statement in 1907 by R.A. Underwood. This is written in the Review and Herald, which was the worldwide denominational paper, still is, um, is under the name Adventist Review now. But Review and Herald, November 21, 1907. Notice what he says, A personal Holy Ghost in charge of the work of grace under God and Christ as their representative and appointed agent to accomplish the work of regeneration of man's soul, body, and spirit will be discounted and made to appear only as an influence. So he's speaking against the anti-Trinitarian view. He's saying they say it's only an influence. Then he says, when faith in the trio of the Godhead is destroyed and the one delegated with authority to resist and conquer man's foe is rejected as not, we are left to the cruel buffetings of Satan with no power to resist our adversary. So that's a strong statement. Um, saying that when our faith in the trio of the God has, is destroyed, we are left to the cruel buffetings of statement. That's the belief of R.A. Underwood, written November 21, 1907. This next statement is written by R. Hare in the Union Conference Record, July 19, 1909. I like that date. July 19 is my birthday. So this is a good statement. This statement says, from the confusing idea of one God and three gods and three gods and one God, the unexplainable dictum of theology, the enemy gladly leads to what appears to be a more rational, though no less erroneous idea, that there is no trinity and that Christ is merely a created being. 
But God's great plan is clear and logical. There is a trinity, and in it there are three personalities. These divine persons are closely associated in the work of God. So, um, you know, he, he's addressing the idea that Christ is a created being and that the Holy Spirit is not a person. Now, again, anti-Trinitarians say, oh, we don't believe Christ is a created being. We believe that he was begotten from the bosom of the Father. But that's really kind of semantics in a sense. So that's the idea that he's addressing. Now, this next statement is from a probably a more well-known source to some of you, Stephen N. Haskell. He wrote the book, The Cross and Its Shadow. He also has an excellent two-part series on Daniel and Revelation um, that he wrote about. And this is what he says about the Trinity. Um, the Holy Spirit is represented in the Bible as one of the Trinity of the Holy Spirit. Christ said that it proceedeth from the Father and he shall testify of me. In many instances in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is spoken of by the use of the personal pronoun he and his. From this, we can, would conclude that the Holy Spirit has a personality. It is evident that the Holy Spirit is one of the Trinity and fully represents God. And by the way, the Bible says, grieve not the Spirit of God. If the Holy Spirit is simply an influence or a power, um, but not a personality, you can't really grieve that. But when you can grieve the Spirit of God, it shows it does have a personality and a personhood. So just to kind of summarize, Starr, Underwood, Hare, and Haskell statements all occur while Ellen White was still alive and none were denounced as heresy. Furthermore, and this is a sad part of history, E.J. Wagner joined the Kellogg apostasy and favored the book Living Temple. Now, the interesting thing about Kellogg and if you, I mean, or Wagner, and we saw this statement in our first presentation, and by the way, I believe with all of my heart that the Lord as Ellen White says, the Lord gave a most precious message to Dr. Wagner in 1888. I believe that. Um, but then he fell away. And part of his falling away was his personal life where he um, went off with another woman. And he also favored this book, The Living Temple, and said there was nothing wrong with it theologically. Now, he was a semi-Aryan and not a Trinitarian, so his Godhead views did not spare him from joining the Alpha of apostasy. Do you see that? So like people say, if we want to not be part of the Omega of apostasy, we need to believe that the Holy Spirit is a person, is an influence, but not a person, and that Christ has um, a begotten beginning from the eternity past, and that will spare us from being part of the Omega of apostasy. Yet Dr. Wagner, who believed those things, joined in the Alpha of apostasy with Dr. Kellogg. So just keep that in mind. Um, so now, let's go to the truth of the whole, about the Holy Spirit. Let's see what the Bible says. John chapter 16, verse 13 says, How be it, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he shall guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Now, here's where things become a bit challenging if you say that the Holy Spirit is Jesus Christ in spirit form. If the Holy Spirit is um, Jesus Christ in spirit form, he's pointing us back to Christ, but it says he shall not speak of himself. So, and then the, the, but the key point is this, is that the Holy Spirit is going to guide us into all truth. So just because some pioneers may have had a certain view about the Holy Spirit, realize they brought that with them from the Christian connection. And that does not then necessarily make it a, a, a point of verifiable truth. Everything that all, all of the doctrines that came in from all of the other churches needed to be retested by the word of the Lord. And then we had a prophet known as the testimony of Jesus, the spirit of prophecy that Ellen White is the mouthpiece for that further gives us clarifying understanding. And so the Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. I believe that as Seventh-day Adventists, we are not led into some truth. I believe that we are led into all truth, and I believe that the Holy Spirit guides us into all truth, and the Holy Spirit will not speak of himself, but whatever he, soever he shall hear, that shall he speak, he will show you things to come. So 
Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. Now, sadly, this is, I, I saw one of my friends who made this statement. They're anti-Trinitarian and they said they used to be um, Trinitarian. Now they're anti-Trinitarian and they said, if I am in error, it is God who led me here. But the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth. So if you're willing to admit that God could lead you into error, that's a very problematic position. It's fanaticism through and through. It, it, and I, you know, I talked to one of my friends who's in ministry who said, you know, when you deal with fanaticism, it's kind of like talking to a young person who's in love. There's nothing you can say to convince them otherwise. And it's, it's, it's an emotional attachment to an idea that isn't true. So let's go to what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. Notice the statement in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land. So we know the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They said that they were going to sell their piece of land and all of the money that they got from selling it, they would give to God's work. But then they kept part of it back. But when they were asked, they said, no, this is everything. So they're lying. And Peter says, you lied to the Holy Ghost. But then if you go on in the next verse, walls it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own power? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied unto men, but unto who? God. So who's the Holy Ghost? God. That's what the Bible says. So Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Ghost. They didn't lie to men, they lied to God. Because the Holy Ghost is God. Now, that's one Bible verse. We could just sit down right now and be done. But I'm going to give you more um, more evidence. So Peter unquestionably equates the Holy Ghost to God. Now, as far as the time and eternity of the Holy Spirit, notice what Hebrews 9.14 says. How much more? Shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the, to serve the living God? Here's what we as Seventh-day Adventists believe. We believe that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are co-eternal and co-equal. They've always existed. They're all eternal and they're all equal. The Spirit is eternal. Now, I've even heard some anti-Trinitarians teach the idea that the Holy Spirit did not come in existence until Pentecost. Now, not all of them believe that, mind you. There's a variation of beliefs among that movement. But clearly, the Holy Spirit has existed through eternity as well. So the, the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is eternal. Now, we're going to see some other key points about the Holy Spirit. We see that the Godhead, or the Trinity... By the way, I don't have a problem using the term Trinity. People say, oh, the term Trinity is Catholic. Well, let me just throw a few thoughts out there for you. You do realize that the Catholics believe that Jesus died on the cross? So are we going to say that the death of Christ on the cross is a Catholic teaching? No, it's a Bible teaching. So the Catholics believe a mixture of truth and error. And just because they use the term Trinity doesn't mean that we should feel ashamed to use that term when the Bible teaches three co-eternal persons in Scripture. So let's look at the Godhead present at creation, or the Trinity present at creation. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, has spoken unto us by his Son, by whom also he made the worlds. So Christ made the worlds, and so the Father was present at creation, the Son was present at creation, but Genesis 1 verse 2 says the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all present at creation. And we talked about this in the previous presentation, but in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8, here we see God and the Son, but in Hebrews 1 verse 8, the Father says to the Son, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. So the Son is God, the Father is God, and we saw from Acts 5 verses 3 and 4 that the Holy Ghost is God. So all three persons of the Godhood are present at creation because creation was such an important moment in the history of the universe. Now, 
not only were they present at creation, notice the Holy Spirit is responsible for the conception of Christ. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. So the Holy Spirit was responsible for the conception of Christ. Now, if you think that the Holy Spirit is just the Spirit of the Father and the Son or the Spirit form of Jesus, then you start to come to some interesting, weird, strange conclusions when it comes to the conception of Christ. Um, So just keep that in mind. Now, um, in Matthew chapter 3, so we see the Godhead present at Jesus' baptism. Matthew three sixteen and 17. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. So there's the Holy Spirit. And then we see the voice of the Father, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So the Spirit descends like a dove. That's the Holy Spirit. And then the Father speaks with a voice. So we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all present at Jesus' baptism. And by the way, Jesus, when he was baptized, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are present. And when we baptize new converts, we baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Now, it is true that some of the anti-Trinitarians say, well, we baptize in the name of Jesus because we can show that from um, the work of the apostles, I believe, in the book of Acts. But Jesus said baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So I'm going to take the commission from Christ and say, he is my example, and he said to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And if the Holy Spirit was just an influence that existed between the Father and the Son, we could just baptize in the name of the Father and the Son because we'd already have it covered. But Jesus says, no, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. They were all present at the baptism of Jesus, and they all promised to be present at our baptism when we are baptized in their name. I like that. So Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, Go ye therefore and teach or make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Now some, I don't know all, but I've certainly seen this on some of the Facebook debates, some anti-Trinitarians try to discredit the validity of this verse. Now look, when you wish a verse was not in the Bible, that should raise red flags about your theological position. Man, if that verse wasn't there, my position would be so much better. Mm -mm. We take all of the Bible, even if it doesn't fit, then maybe we need to go back and re-look at what we're teaching if we're disappointed that we find a verse that contradicts our understanding. And again, I talked about this with M.L. Andreasen in our last presentation. He was convinced that Ellen White did not write the statement, in Christ is life, original, unborrowed, and underived, and he changed his position when he saw the clear statement from her own handwriting. Okay, now here's another concept that I find to be very powerful when believing in the truth of the Holy Spirit. You know, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 13, 1, this is the third time I am coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. So you have three persons of the Godhead. And they all testify of each other. Notice um, in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The very, so this is very interesting. It's the same chapter. So verse 14 is the last verse in 2 Corinthians 13. Verse 1 is the first verse, obviously, in that chapter. And the first verse says, In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. Then when he comes to the end, he's like, this is how we establish this truth. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. So here we have three witnesses, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Now think about this. When Jesus came to this earth, he came to bear witness of the Father. And when the Holy Ghost was sent after Jesus ascended back to earth, Jesus says, he will testify of me, meaning he's a witness to Jesus. 
So here's the amazing thing, though. For each member of the Godhead, they have two witnesses to testify of them. So the Father has the Son and the Holy Spirit to testify of him. The Son has the Father and the Holy Ghost to testify of him. And the Holy Ghost has the Father and the Son to testify of him. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. So each member of the Godhead has two witnesses. And the Holy Spirit doesn't say a whole lot about himself. He simply talks about the Son and the Father at the risk even of being misunderstood. But that's the humility of the Godhead because they testify of the other. But in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. That's the biblical principle. That's why we use two or three verses at least to prove a doctrinal point. And we use that same principle when proving that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost have witnesses for each other. Now, I'm going to share with you 1 John 5, 7. Now, many people say this verse doesn't belong in the Bible. We're going to talk about this now. But this is a powerful verse in favor of the Trinity. 1 John chapter 5, verse 7 says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. But I want you to open your Bibles, and we're going to read actually verses 6 through 8, because that's going to give us a clearer understanding. And this is where a knowledge of Greek can be helpful, and I'm going to simplify that for you here in a minute. But 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 8 says, This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood, and it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. Now verse 7, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And verse 8, And there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. Now this passage, 1 John 5, 7, is called the Johannine comma. Because a lot of translations leave it out of Scripture and they'll just make a little index and you can find it down at the bottom that they say it's not found in the manuscripts that they're using for their translation. It is, however, found in the Textus Receptus, but not in the majority of Greek manuscripts. However, it is found in the majority of Latin manuscripts. Now, why this discrepancy? And should this verse be in the Bible? Well, let me read to you a statement from Dr. Thomas Newton. This is from a book written, Crowned with Glory. Now, check this out. He says, the strongest evidence for this verse is found in the Greek text itself. Looking at 1 John 5, 8, there are three nouns which in Greek stand in the neuter, spirit, water, and blood. However, they are followed by a participle that is masculine. The Greek phrase here is oi martyrantis, who bear witness. Those who know the Greek language understand this to be poor grammar if left to stand on its own. Even more noticeably, verse 6 has the same participle, but stands in the neuter. So it's like, this doesn't make sense if you have just verse 6 and verse 8. And then he says, why are three neuter nouns supported with a masculine participle? The answer is found if we include verse 7. There we have two masculine nouns, father and son, followed by a neuter noun, spirit. The verse also has the Greek masculine participle, oi martyrantis. With this clause introducing verse 8, it is very proper for the participle in verse 8 to be masculine because of the masculine nouns in verse 7. But if verse 7 were not there, it would become improper Greek grammar. So isn't that interesting? So people say, oh yeah, 1 John 5, 7, that's not found in the Greek manuscript, so it shouldn't be in the Bible. But it's actually found in the Textus Receptus and in the majority of Latin manuscripts. And there's very good reason based on the language of masculine and neuter nouns that are used in these verses in the Greek that 1 John 5, verse 7 should be in the Bible. So what does that verse again say? For there are three that bear record in heaven, and the marginal reading for record is witness. So again, the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. There are three that bear record or witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. I truly believe, friends, that's not a Catholic verse in the Bible. That's a biblical verse in the Bible. Now, What does Ellen White say? This is a very 
familiar, powerful verse that really adds a lot of clarity. The comforter that Christ promised to send after he ascended to heaven is the spirit and all the fullness of the Godhead, making manifest the power of divine grace to all who receive and believe in Christ as a personal Savior. Now notice this next statement. There are three living persons of the heavenly trio. Is that clear? There are three living persons of the heavenly trio. In the name of these three great powers, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, those who received Christ by living faith, are baptized. Now notice, she identifies these three persons as three great powers. For those who say, oh, well, the Holy Spirit is just a power, well, so is the Father and the Son. And they're also persons. They're powers and they're persons. So... Those who receive Christ by living faith are baptized, and these powers will cooperate with the obedient subjects of heaven in their efforts to live the new life in Christ. I am thankful that I can have confidence in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to give me divine power to live the new life of Christ by faith. Amen? There are three living persons of the heavenly tree. So the Holy Spirit is an eternal person. He is... God, that Ananias and Sapphira lied to, and he's one of the three persons of the heavenly trio. Now, notice this next statement. This is manuscript 66, 1899. It's also found in the book Evangelism, page 616. We need to realize that the Holy Spirit, who is as much a person as God is a person, is walking through these grounds. That's very clear. The Holy Spirit, who is as much a person as God as a person, is walking through these grounds. So he's not just a force or an influence. He is a person. Now, these two statements make it clear that there are three living persons of the heavenly trio, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that the Holy Spirit is as much a person as God as a person. Now, here is a statement I'm going to share with you that anti-Trinitarians try to use to say that the Holy Spirit really is just Jesus Christ. This is letter 66, 1894. The Lord is soon to come. We want that complete and perfect understanding which the Lord alone can give. It is not safe to catch the Spirit from another. We want the Holy Spirit, which is Jesus Christ. If we communion with God, we shall have strength and grace and efficiency. And if you just use that one statement, you'd be like, oh, wow, okay. But notice manuscript releases, volume 23, 24. The Holy Spirit is the comforter in Christ's name. He, the Holy Spirit, personifies Christ, yet is a distinct personality. So he's not the same. He personifies Christ, yet he is a distinct personality. And it goes back to what Jesus says about himself and the Father. I and my Father are one. He who has seen me has seen the Father, but Jesus and the Father are not the same being. But they are the same. They, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. He and his Father are one. The same thing with the Holy Spirit in Christ. If you have the Spirit of the Holy Spirit, you're going to have the Spirit of Christ because the Godhead is united. They have the same Spirit. But they are three distinct persons. Now, this is Signs of the Times, April 3, 1884. The Holy Spirit exalts and glorifies the Savior. Now, notice, it is his office to present Christ, the great salvation that we have through him, and the sacred elevated purity of his righteousness. Says Christ, he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. The Spirit of truth is the only effectual teacher of divine truth. Those who are taught of him have entered the school of Christ. How God must esteem the race that he gave his son to die for them and appoints his spirit to be man's teacher and continual guide. So notice, the Holy Spirit has a specific office to present Christ. Then letter 13, 1894, thank God that the world's Redeemer promised that if we went away, he would send the Holy Spirit as his representative. Now, the representative is not the same person that he's representing, but he's his representative. Let us pray and grasp the rich promises of God that in proportion to our earnest, humble supplications, the Holy Spirit will be appointed to meet our needs. If we seek God with all our heart, we shall find him and obtain the fulfillment of the promise. And then another statement, manuscript releases, volume 2, page 36. The Father hath given us his Son for us, that through the Son the Holy Spirit might come to us and lead us to the Father. This, his divine agency, we have this... We have the spirit of intercession whereby we may plead with God as a man pleadeth with his throne. So through his divine agency. Now, there are some attacks 
on the spirit of prophecy, Leroy Freeman's persona non grata in many circles of Seventh-day Adventism. The claim is that Leroy Froome tampered with the writings of Ellen White relating to what she said about the Holy Spirit when compiling the book Evangelism. How many of you have heard that? You know, that's a serious charge to say that Ellen White's writings have been tampered with, especially when you can go back and look at the original manuscripts from which those statements were compiled. Now, it is true that Froome made mistakes in other areas, and we're going to talk about that in our fifth presentation. My fifth presentation is from Questions on Doctrine to Desmond Ford, and we're going to see how Desmond Ford um, manipulated statements, or not statements, but headings in his book. Now, the statements are, are the same thing. He didn't manipulate her writings, he, but he put headings in there. But if you look at her statements and put them all together on the human nature of Christ, it's very clear. But if you look at the statements on the Holy Spirit and go back to the original, there's nothing nefarious about the Holy Spirit. So when we start to say that the book Evangelism is misstating the truth about the Holy Spirit, now we're saying that the spirit of prophecy is not a reliable source for our understanding of the Holy Spirit. And once we start to say that, we're making her writings of none effect. Notice what Ellen White says in Selected Messages. Volume 1, page 48. The very last deception of Satan will be to make of none effect the testimony of the Spirit of God. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Satan will work ingeniously in different ways and through different agencies to unsettle the confidence of God's remnant people in the true testimony. And so one of the ways he's working ingeniously is to say, well, my view, which is the pioneer view of the Godhead is correct and the book evangelism is wrong because it's been manipulated but the reality is you can look up all the original statements and they all say that there are three living persons of the heavenly trio that the Holy Spirit is as much a person as God is a person and you're running into trouble when you start to say things about her writings in that way. So it's my settled conviction that Satan is working through this movement to unsettle God's people in their confidence in the spirit of prophecy, and I say this in all sincerity, claiming that Ellen White's writings have been tampered with shows that they have departed from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Now let me read to you some more statements. This is Councils on Health, page 222. The Godhead was stirred with pity for the race. Now look at this. And the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit gave themselves to the working out of the plan of redemption. In order fully to carry out this plan, it was decided that Christ, the only begotten Son of God, should give himself an offering for sin. What line can measure the depth of this love? God would make it possible for man to say that he could have done more. With Christ, he gave all the resources of heaven that nothing might be wanting in the plan for man's uplifting. Here is love, the contemplation of which should fill the soul with inexpressible gratitude. Oh, what love, what matchless love. The contemplation of this love will cleanse the soul from all selfishness. It will lead the disciple to deny self, take up the cross, and follow the Redeemer. So let me show you that again. The very first line of the statement, the Godhead was stirred with pity for the race and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit gave themselves to the working out of the plan of redemption. So the Holy Spirit was part of that conversation for how humanity would be saved. So let's keep going. Testimonies, volume 6, page 99. The fact that you have been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is an assurance that if you will claim their help, these powers will help you in every emergency. Again, all three powers are there to help us. Selected Messages, volume 1, page 344. Christ, our mediator, and the Holy Spirit are constantly interceding in man's behalf, but the Spirit pleads not for us, as does Christ, who presents his blood shed from the foundation of the world. The Spirit works upon our hearts, drawing out prayers and penitence, praise and thanksgiving. The gratitude which flows from our lips is the result of the Spirit striking the chords of the soul and holy memories, awakening the music of the heart. So, you know, we always know that Christ ever lives to make intercession for us, but here we have the Holy Spirit is interceding for us also, but in a way different than Christ. So here we see a distinct work for the Holy Spirit. Now this is a statement from Manuscript 139 written in 1906. 
This is Ellen White in a sermon that she gave. Now a little point. As the saints in the kingdom of God are accepted in the beloved, they hear, come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then the golden harps are touched and the music flows all through the heavenly host. Now look at this. And they fall down and worship the father and the son and the Holy Spirit. God alone is worthy of worship. So the Holy Spirit is God. So Jesus is worthy of worship, the Holy Spirit is worthy of worship, and the Father is worthy of worship. This is from inspiration. Now, this is not, I don't know that all anti-Trinitarians believe this, but I've seen this stated clearly by some leading anti-Trinitarians on Facebook. Some anti-Trinitarians believe that worshiping Jesus or the Holy Spirit is breaking the first commandment, which says, thou shalt have no other gods before me, because they believe the Father is the only true God and that we have one Lord, Jesus Christ, and the Spirit is just the Spirit of either the Father and the Son or the Spirit of Jesus. So they're saying you're breaking the commandments by worshiping the Son or the Holy Spirit. But Ellen White says we're going to worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then Jeremiah 10.10 says that the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and an everlasting king. So he is worthy of worship as well. Now, let's just go through a a few things here. Anti-Trinitarians claim that their view of the Godhood. Now, again, this is some. I think not necessarily everybody believes this, but there are certainly many um, who believe this. And I was just talking to one of my brothers in between sessions who has also been told personally by anti-Trinitarians that he will be lost if he doesn't accept their anti-Trinitarian view. Anti-Trinitarians claim that their view of the Godhead is necessary in order to experience righteousness by faith and to receive the latter rain. Sadly, they have fallen into the trap of many other fanatical movements, such as the 2520 movement, feast-keeping, lunar Sabbath, date-setters, the church triumphant movement, which is the Jeff Pippinger movement, who basically say our truth is the testing truth for this time, and if you don't accept it, you're not going to be saved. And yet they're going against clear biblical and spirit of prophecy teaching that teaches otherwise. So now notice Ellen White has a statement about people who make a false test and give a false loud cry. This is volume 9 of the manuscript, um, page 27, written in 1884, letter 20, 1884. God is raising up a class to give the loud cry of the third angel's message. Of your own self shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Now, that verse was applied Uh, primarily and initially to the church at Ephesus, but Ellen White makes an application to the Seventh-day Adventist church, and she's saying, from within the church, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. And, you know, if it was just something that people kept to themselves, that'd be one thing, but a lot of times they're agitating and pushing because they want to gain a movement of disciples who are following this idea. It is Satan's object now to get up new theories to divert the mind from the true work and genuine message for this time. He stirs up minds to give false interpretation of scripture, a spurious loud cry that the real message may not have its effect when it does come. This is one of the greatest evidences that the loud cry will soon be heard and the earth lightened with the glory of God. So I I do say this, the one reason I give thanks that there are heresies like this in the church, this tells me that the real loud cry is about to come. But I can tell you anti-Trinitarianism is not the loud cry. And the 2520 is not the loud cry. And the Jeff Pippinger movement and the feast keeping movement and the Lunar Sabbath movement, those are not the loud cry movements for Adventism at the end of the world. The, The true loud cry movement is when God's people have Christ in them, the hope of glory, Christ in us, where the character of Christ is seen so that the earth will be illuminated with the glory of his character. That's what's going to lead to the outpouring of the loud cry. And I will have Christ in me when I accept him as God and when I believe that the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, will empower me to receive Christ so that I can be a representative of the character of Jesus. That's the true loud cry. Now, a few other statements. Letter 240, 1903. Those who seek to define God are on forbidden ground. We are to enter into no controversy regarding God, what he is and what he is not. He, the omniscient one, is above discussion. Those who express such sentiments regarding him show that they are departing from the faith. That's a strong statement. Those who try to define God 
are departing from the faith. Now, I say this in all love, but Romans sixteen seventeen says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. Here's my advice to you today if you are to run into some of our brothers and sisters who want to push this. Don't argue with them. It's a waste of time. The Bible says mark them and avoid them. And I say this in all charity, but I'm going to do my best by the grace of God to follow this counsel when the seminar is over. Because I've studied this issue already and all these reams of quotes that suggest to the anti-Trinitarians otherwise do not fit within the wider volume of inspiration that shows clearly the doctrine of Scripture on this teaching. Stay away from their meetings and disfellowship those in your church who are agitating this issue. You know, sometimes I hear people say, well, how come the church doesn't deal with this division or that union or that entity? And then in their own church, um, they're allowing their children to commit adultery and not face consequences for it. And they have people teaching doctrinal heresies that are dividing the church, and they don't have them um, face consequences for it. Listen, we need to be consistent starting out our own local church. Don't allow these ideas to come into your church and to become agitated. It's one thing, now again, and let me be clear, if you have a brother or sister who quietly believes this and isn't agitating the issue, don't go on a witch hunt. I'm not saying that. But if they're agitating it, and they're bringing up in every Sabbath school class, and they're wanting it to be shared from the pulpit, and they're trying to draw people in the church away into that belief, that is disruptive behavior in the church, and it's a heresy that needs to be addressed. Now, Ellen White says this in Early Writings, page 124. God is displeased with us when we go to listen to error without being obliged to go. It's like, hey, I'm going to go check out that anti-Trinitarian meeting and see what they have to say. No, God's displeased when we go to hear that. For unless he sends us to those meetings where error is forced home to the people by the power of the will, he will not keep us. The angels cease their watchful care over us and we are left to the buffetings of the enemy to be darkened and weakened by him and the power of his evil angels and the light around us becomes contaminated with the darkness. So don't go. Don't engage. Don't say, okay, sure, you can come over to to my house and give me a Bible study as to why you believe this because we already see clearly that the Holy Spirit is God. There are three living persons of the heavenly trio. The Holy Spirit is as much a person as God is a person. And when you start to tell me that I'm part of the omega of apostasy because I believe what inspiration says, that's a major problem. And I see that as the work of the enemy, not the work of Christ. Now, a few concluding thoughts. Let us not be confused over such basic Bible doctrine and clearly defined truths. Let us focus on receiving the Holy Spirit so that we will receive the true latter rain. May we be part of God's closing work in which the third person of the Godhead fills our lives so that we can illuminate the earth with the glory of God's character. And I want to close with John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11, and I invite you to turn with me to these verses. John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11. And here the Bible says, and when he, the spirit, or when he has come, excuse me, and when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now this is the comforter spoken of in verse 7. Of sin because they believe not on me, of judgment or of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Listen, it is necessary for the comfort of the Holy Spirit to come because Christ went back to heaven. And when he has come, he is going to reprove the world of sin. Listen, friends, I want to make a, a personal appeal to you. I need the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead in my life because he brings conviction of sin to my heart. And when I diminish his power, I'm opening the door for the devil to 
create doubt in my mind to all of the power that God has given to the Holy Spirit, who is the third person of the Godhead. And the Holy Spirit is going to lead me into all truth. He's going to convict me of sin. He's going to show me what righteousness is. And he's going to show me of the judgment. Because listen, friends, the Seventh-day Adventists, we are living in the judgment hour of Earth's history since 1844. And I need the Holy Spirit to point out sin in my life so that I will confess that sin, repent of it, and receive Christ's righteousness by faith so that I will stand faithful in the judgment. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I need at this time. And that's what we as a church need. So again, I want to remind you, this book on the Trinity by Glenn Parfit, you can get this at the Audioverse booth. I have these um, coupons in my hand, if you would like to get one, you can get a discount at the Audioverse booth. But I want to just encourage you to follow God completely. Follow the three living persons of the heavenly trio. And when Jesus comes, may we be found faithful in him. Amen. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for being with us over these two hours. We pray that the heavenly trio the trinity is understood more clearly and that we can have confidence in the three witnesses of this trio the father the son and the holy spirit who all testify of each other that in the mouth of two or three witnesses they establish each member of the godhead may we faithfully follow you and may the holy spirit bring conviction to our hearts and our minds of what sin is and when jesus comes may we be found faithful i pray this in jesus name amen This message was recorded at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.